We're back, everybody. I'm Carly Knight. And I'm Jill White. And welcome back to Procrastination Planet, where we should be writing, but... But... (laughs) (laughs) But... But... I can't put in my recording, my little pre-canned introduction, you know, with the nifty music and my little tagline, because I'm recording on um, some different distance software, and they only give me MP3s to, like, mess around with. So I can't move stuff around the way I can with WAV files. However, I'm grateful to have two tracks that I can do my audio editing on, so I'm trying not to bitch too much. It is 2020. We're in apocalyptic times. Please have some grace. (laughs) Without much further ado, we are going to do a deep dive into Ann Tyler's The Accidental Tourist. It was a book written in the 80s, so there's going to be a lot of spoilers. Not only a book, but a movie, too. Yeah. The thing that got us thinking about doing an episode was um, we've both read The Weekend Novelist. Yes. And that is a how-to book on how to read a novel. And And that is by Robert J. Ray. Yes, we should probably link to that. (laughs) And he uses the accidental tourist as a model for novel structure. So we thought we'd take a look and see for ourselves how... um, how he kind of sees how the sausage is made, so to speak. Right. I, you know, I always liked the, the book. I'd read it before I got the weekend novelist, but I couldn't tell you why I liked it. You know, it's like you have a cookie A and cookie B. You like cookie A better, but you don't know why until someone tells you, well, cookie A is made with butter and good quality chocolate, whereas cookie B is made with vegetable lard and some cheap cocoa powder or whatever, you know? Yeah. And, th- and this is sort of what he does for, for the book. You know, it's like, oh, okay. You know, he dissects it and explains it and analyzes it and, and uses it as examples on how to write a book. And you think, oh, that's why it was so good. Okay. Yeah. So we decided to do some dissection of our own. Right. So shall we do a summary? Yeah. Let's do a quick summary. Okay. So Macon is a travel writer who hates to travel, and he writes travel books for mostly for business people who have to travel but don't necessarily want to travel. And he'll make recommendations like the most American-style food to go to in Paris, <laughs> where you, you, know, you don't want to eat their wonderful food there. And the first chapter really zooms you along. He's and his wife, Sarah, are in the car, and they're talking about their child who they lost the year before. And she just can't stand the way he handles it. He's so insular. He, he hides his emotions and his grief. Anyway, and she asks him for a divorce. She just can't take it anymore. He has a dog named Edward who just gets out of control, attacks everybody. So he takes him to a dog trainer named Muriel. And she doesn't like dogs, but she can train them. So they make an interesting couple. And she's the very opposite of Macon. Whereas he's so neutral, she is very outrageous. And how she dresses, she's very chatty. Um, she's not scared of anything. You know, she, someone wants to rob her. She just pushes that person aside. You know, she just jumps into life and she pushes him to do things. And so it's a, it's, it's a love story of sorts. A very strange one. Oh, definitely. I kind of feel like, um, like Muriel is, I guess she was a manic pixie dream girl before they came up with that term. (laughs) Although Unlike um, the Manic Pixie Dream Girls that male authors like to write, she actually has a life of her own. Mm-hmm. She has a personal life of her own. She's a fully fled, you know, fully fleshed out character, and she still has some growing of her own to do. 
Right. And Macon has some growing of his own to do. And it's not just because Muriel is there to sprinkle fairy dust on it and make him grow. Mm-hmm. He still has to do the hard work. Right. And what's nice is that you learn in this book, you learn about their backgrounds. I don't know. The author does it in a way. It's not like you're just reading history, you know. Mm-hmm. You learn about Macon's family, you know, a mother who um, was wild, you know, and yeah. went off and did things where, you know, he and his two brothers and sister were so, you know, I guess they hated that and became the, the exact opposite. Yeah, they wanted stability. And so when their right. grandparents came to take care of them, they were like, the grandparents are like super like staunch and prim mm-hmm. and all that sort of thing. And the children took to them immediately. They love that. That's right. They felt comfortable in that. Yeah. And um, and they are still a really weird family. That's right. The, the two brothers, Charles and Porter, were married, but they got divorced. And they're back living together with their sister, who is also a very, she's very prim, but she's also very nurturing. Yeah. And highly organized. But she's, she's kind of buckling under the pressure of this whole Leary thing. Like she's tired of taking care of them all the damn time. Mm -hmm. And so Julian comes in and you know what I've noticed is that Julian and Rose are the gender flipped analog or the foil to Macon Uh, and Muriel. That's good. She's she's really prim and he's kind of wild and carefree. And so he's got kind of the manic. Yeah. Yeah. He's like the manic pixie dream boy. (laughs) (laughs) I hadn't thought of that, but that's so true. That's so true. Yeah. I was reading that, but, I'm like, oh, wait, I'm seeing some parallels there. Right. So I thought that was really cool. Right. And he's the pursuer, Julian. Yes. You know, he goes after Rose. And because I think he likes her stability. Mm-hmm. You know, I think he's kind of fed up. He is fed up with his life. And it's his settled nature, or her settled nature, sorry. I think he's attracted to, you know, the home-cooked meals, the coffee afterwards, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Of course, he looks at Macon as some sort of like cartoon character, or fictional character. <laughs> but then what? what's her name? Rose. She takes a liking to Julian. And I think she's kind of sick of being like with the Leary men. Never marry a Leary. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's never what we should call our episode. Ne- <laughs> either never marry a Leary or accidental tourist in quarantine. <laughs> I feel like this would be Leary paradise right now. I was just going to say they would love this. You know, I'm, they stuck at home, don't have to go out. Yeah. Just make your body bags and your laundry system. So, <laughs> That's right. gets, oh, so after the divorce, Macon gets extra much weird after, you know, for probably a few months or something afterwards. That's like right. he said, he's very, very into his systems. He leans on his systems. And on page 42, Sarah says something like, um, like, you're so into your systems that you've given up on life or something like that. Like, he's merely existing. He's not really living. Mm-hmm. Okay, so he wants to set up a system where he can do less and less laundry. He has this whole shoot. No, the shoot becomes like this dog food dispenser. And then he makes this series of um, making Larry body bags where you sew a bunch of sheets together and you sleep in one little part of the envelope and then you put then you kind of peel that away and then I'm trying to picture it in my head and it's frightening, but it's pretty <laughs> much the Macon Leary body bag. He, they literally call it, they literally call it a body bag. Right. And the thing that stuck me with that name is 
it shows that Macon isn't isn't really living. He's existing, isn't he? Yeah, he's just merely existing. He's like change. There's the big change in his life. There's the death of his son. There's um, the divorce from his wife. Mm-hmm. So change is a death of sorts, symbolically. So to have him in that body bag, he had to go through this death before he's able to come back to life. I like that analogy. That's really good. Thank you. That's really good. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I was just kind of stuck on that body bag thing. I'm like, okay, this is really super bent. Like she has... <laughs> One of the things I really like about this book is um, Anne Tyler, she draws these weird and quirky characters, but they're not quirky for the sake of being quirky. It's not, hey, look, I'm making a quirky character. Look at me. Mm-hmm. Look at me and how unique I am. It's just more, um, they come across their quirks organically. And the way she explains it, you're almost getting into it yourself, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just part of them, part of their nature. And she kind of shows how these supposedly normal and prim people can just be really fucking weird. If left to their own devices. Yeah. You know, you need someone to balance out your life. Yeah. No man is an island. That's right. I really That's noticed right. that in the scene where he's, um, he had to check his crutches at the restaurant where he met, went to meet Sarah. Right. right. So he had to check his crutches and then she had to take off. I don't remember she went to the bathroom and he thought he was going to just nope out early or she just up and left the restaurant altogether. I think she, she left, left the restaurant. The restaurant. Yeah, she left the restaurant. Yeah. And then he's there. He has no crutches. He has to, he's got to reach out. He can't just be there without any sort of connection. That's right. And he grabs on his way out. He's so, he wants them so badly. He grabs the wrong crutches and doesn't even realize it till it's pointed out to him because the crutches were actually too small for him. <laughs> So that leg injury is is really the catalyst for him having to change. That's right. That's um, it's funny. I put that down as um, door number one. Oh no, that's not door number one. Sorry, never mind. (laughs) (laughs) But our other our other Bible um, plot and structure. That's right. Yeah. So he that that's when he goes over to live with his. um, He realized he needed help. So he, he goes to live with his, his two brothers and his sister. And that's when he meets Sarah in the restaurant, that's where she gets upset with them because when he's hurt, who does he turn to? He turns to his family and not her. Exactly. Exactly. Because her, her actually, you know, when they talked about when they lived together, I think she was a bit topsy-turvy. You know, she threw clothes around. She wasn't super neat. Yeah. And um, I so. think it's because... Um, well, he has all these unresolved issues with his mother. His mother's really unstable and just very flighty. And so, in essence, he tends to be attracted to women who are um, like his mother. A little, yeah, who are a little less mm-hmm. neat. So it's like he's trying to repair that sort of wound. Certainly seems like it, doesn't it? Yeah. And Although it's kind of funny, like with, um, like with Sarah and Macon, like they match in ways that make each other complacent. Right. They're not different enough to make it work, but the ways they differ, they clash. Like for a while, she was the extrovert to his introvert, but then um, like she wasn't, she just kind of goes along to get along. She's very go with the flow. He has a system. She she goes along. Muriel, mm-hmm. she has her own system. Her system is going to upset Macon's system. Exactly. So their differences kind of complement each other. And then when their son died, she started to retreat and become introverted too. So she's no longer like a foil for him. And then they're way too alike to make it work. 
And she recognizes that. I yeah. mean, in that, that, that's in that first chapter, right? She just can't cope that, that he doesn't um, express himself. You know, he just hides internally. Yeah. And then when he meets Muriel, because the broken leg is the catalyst that makes him have to go out of his shell. Because the broken leg and then the trouble with Edward, the dog. that makes him have to reach out to Muriel. Exactly. And that's actually, that's where I put my door number one is it's because of Muriel. That's who he breaks down to. Yeah. About his son. And so maybe because, as you say, she is where Sarah wasn't enough Mm -hmm. for him to, you know, to show his emotion. Muriel brings it out. Yeah. And then they're both weird in different ways. They, um, like in the original Rocky movie, when he's trying to court Yo Adrian, he's like, see, we fill the, we fill the gaps. <laughs> so, like, Megan and Muriel fill, fill the gaps for each other. Yes, I do. <laughs> I think it's funny that um, her name is Muriel Pritchett, and it seems like the, the most prim, like, most buttoned-down kind of name. Doesn't it? Yeah. And she's anything but. So she's got, like, this ironic name, too. Right. And her background, I thought, was really interesting, too. At one point, you meet her family. Yeah. And um, it's like from when she was a young girl, she just did what she wanted to do. You know, mm-hmm. her mother was just horrified. Yeah. And her, you know? well, her mom seemed to be comparing her to her sister. So she was never going to be enough. So she was just supposed to fade into the background as compared to the perfect sister. Right. Even though the sister in the end was getting angry with the mother. Mm-hmm. Because she she ended up leaving home because she just couldn't take the mother anymore. And the thing about the mother is that she still treated Muriel like a little girl, too. Talked about her like she was some, you know, silly young child. Yeah. You know, Muriel now has grown up with a child of her own, you know. Yeah, and I think that's another thing that um, that keeps making around, even though he he doesn't want to be around. But it's like, like Alexandra can help fill that void. Yes. Yes, Muriel's son. And I like how he Megan tries to bond with him and show him things where Alexander never had that. Although, and that's how he bonds with Muriel's father too, fixing things together, talking to him about cars, you know? Yeah. Because the father would never say a word. I mean, he was even probably more closed than Megan. Yeah. So maybe that's something that, um, that drew Muriel to him too. So they definitely have, um, childhood issues they had to resolve. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's not an ideal relationship. It's a little bit codependent in its own way, but um, it makes sense from a fictional standpoint, from a storytelling storytelling standpoint. Mm-hmm. So they complement each other. Yes. Sometimes I think Alexander is kind of a mini Macon. I think he kind of bonds with him not only to fill the void from losing Ethan, but also I'm wondering if he's like doing an intervention. Like, okay, we can't have another kid turn into someone like me. It's no way to go through life, son. <laughs> Too late for me, but you're still young. Right, let's hope for you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's funny because wasn't there a scene in the book, um, sort of a flashback when Ethan was alive and, and Mackin was, gosh, I, I can barely remember it, but Mackin was trying to get his son to do something. And maybe it was just something that was so, oh, I was with the baseball, maybe playing, you know, or learning how to bat with the baseball. Was that it? I forget what it was, but I think. Um, you know, Mackin had his, Macon had his way of doing it and his son just wasn't. Didn't want to do so it. Let's just do it. Yeah, his son was definitely yeah, not going to be a mini Macon. He was going to be his own person. Right. He was destined for normalcy. That's right. And Macon finds out through his nephews and nieces how his son used to make fun of him. 
<laughs> oh no. So, yeah. Well, not, not in a horrible way, but not in a know. horrible way, but in a way that everyone makes fun of their parents when they're young. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I guess he's realizing he is a person that can be easily ridiculed, you know. Yeah. So yeah, his eyes definitely get opened up. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of I really like how she like makes all of these characters a good foil for each other or they all have meaning. All these characters have meaning. They do. They they, they all have a part in his life that make, yeah. that helps him change. Yeah, there's um like with Muriel's Okay, she loves vintage clothing, vintage furniture, astrology, tarot. Okay, maybe Muriel is me, but with um, no kids and I love dogs. <laughs> I was going to say, she sounds like you a little bit. <laughs> mm -hmm. Except I wouldn't be hanging a dog. Pra okay, we have to talk about Muriel's yes. dog training methods. This was no. the 80s, and her way of dog training, I think even Caesar Milan would be like, um, you're going too far with that. I think that's, that was just her. I, I can't see that ever being approved by anybody. Yeah, that was just... <laughs> and that almost did them in. That that was a... You know, he didn't want to see her anymore after that. Yeah, I mean, there's... Um, it's one thing, you know, you say enough and then pop the leash. Right. You know, because you're supposed to surprise the dog and get them out of their little trance that they're in, you know. Okay. They're barking and getting crazy. You go, enough, pop the leash, and then they're supposed to kind of be stunned out of it but right. like she was practically hanging him she was hanging him yeah she was like choking <laughs> yeah she was like she, choking she, him out it's like you don't you don't uh, choke out a dog you don't need to choke out a dog you know it's funny cuz um i'm reading in the midst of reading white fang i'd never read white fang mm. and in one part have you ever read it no i saw the Jack movie cuz um ethan hawk was in it and ah, okay. i was in ninth grade and thought he was hot and it was the 90s people okay it was the 90s i grew up we are all learning and growing he's getting old too yeah i know so. he, he turned out to be trash so yeah anyway um no i didn't see the movie but um i don't know if this part was in the movie but you know and the way jack london writes it it's like this little half or mostly wolf teeny bit dog this puppy mm -hmm. needs to behave and and the he's he's a chief of a first nation you know native american tribe and up in alaska there and he starts smacking the dog and smacking uh. him until the dog behave i mean he's a puppy you know yeah. and, and one part he wanted to be with his mother you know and i thought well you know so maybe some people would approve of muriel's method it, you know i don't know if people actually did that maybe they did back then this is what the late 19th century you know yeah 19th century it's pretty brutal. <laughs> yeah, nineteenth century, you're um, like giving your kids saltpeter and <laughs> and like putting various torture devices to keep them from masturbating. So, and you're, and you're doing this to a human child, okay? So, smacking a puppy around, I would not be surprised. Okay, don't mind me. I had to open the door and see if Holly had to go uh, out and do her business. Of puppies. Speaking of dogs. Yeah. But so, she's like, no, I'm not doing it. Holly, you have no idea how good you have it. So, yeah. And so, again, so Edward, you know, after Muriel does that, Edward becomes, you know, he obeys her. You know? mm -hmm. And I made me think of like when Jack London's writing, all of a sudden this puppy realizes who is master, you know? And yeah. and I'm not sure if we're supposed to be admiring that the way London writes it. You know? Yeah. Thinking, you know, but anyway, um, it brought that to mind. And uh, so, sorry, back, back to the book. Yeah, definitely back to the book. 
we digress. It's procrastination planet. It's very on brand. <laughs> and I'm, I'm easy. It's easy to digress me. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so yeah. So at this point, Macon is really upset and tells her he doesn't want to see her anymore. Oh yeah, definitely. And I think too, um, all, all of this business with Edward, mm-hmm. well, it didn't become an issue until Sarah left and, or he's, he's always had a thing, but it's never been a problem because I think I'm wondering, okay, number one, Ethan's presence probably normalized Edward. Mm-hmm. And then let's see, Ethan died. I think the, um, the behavior, he'd always had behavior problems apparently for that year, but Macon didn't think to do anything about it. And he didn't do anything about it until he attacked Julian and he couldn't find anyone to, um, sit for him while he was going on his business trips. That's right. The kennel wouldn't take Edward back. Yeah. I think the only reason he was putting up with a chaotic dog, because a chaotic dog is not part of a system. No. I think he was putting up with him because Edward is a surrogate for Ed, for Ethan. Right. And he says that. You yeah. know, people keep saying, get rid of the dog. And he says, no, he was Ethan's dog. Yeah, and I think in some ways that he's an extent he's an extension of Ethan. He's a way of keeping Ethan around too. That's that's right. Hence the two E names that I'm always <laughs> gonna mix up. Ethan and Edward, yes. Yeah. So I, Megan I, and Muriel. Okay. Yeah, usually one of the writer rules is don't give your characters the same letter name. Right. Oh, I agree. However, I, I I feel like this is on purpose. Probably because yeah, I think most writers are very deliberate about their names. Yeah, and Edward is very much a surrogate for Ethan. Yes. He's not oh, he's yeah. not training Edward, so he gets to keep Ethan on hand. So he definitely hasn't fully grieved Ethan. No. And I think before Sarah left, I'm assuming Sarah probably dealt with Edward more in the house before she, you know, left. You know, and now all of a sudden Macon is stuck with him. It's, yeah. you know, like you wonder if, if they still had Ethan and Macon had to stay home with Ethan if Sarah left. Yeah. That and would have worked out. Sarah left because she's processing the grief. So she didn't take Ed. Yeah. I almost said Ethan. She didn't take <laughs> Edward with him. With her? With her. Because I'm thinking maybe it's because she is processing the grief and moving on. And she knows that it's not forgetting about someone to process the grief. No. On the other hand, Macon is... Um, I forgot what page it was. Oh, page 183. He fears that if he goes through the process that he'll forget about him. And so I think if he's kind of keeping the status quo with Edward, the dog, mm-hmm. he won't forget Ethan. And I think Sarah obviously is aware of it because when she announced her divorce, she said, I'm going to move. So she needs to break out of the house or yeah. get away from the house. She needs a clean, you know, something different, something new to go to. And maybe grieve on her own. And she says to Nathan, or Macon, sorry, I know you don't like to move. So he's there with the house and with the dog. Yeah. And he's maintained his facade too. Because I've, I've noticed like with the relationships that he has with Sarah and then with um, Muriel, mm-hmm. with Sarah, he, um, he maintained this facade. I think, well, she kind of liked him being the strong, silent type. And then he kind of felt like he had to be that way all the time with her. So he kind of stagnated in his character. Well, I don't think it was hard for him either. He, yeah, he didn't have to do a lot of work to no. grow as a character. But of course, she grew up and she's changing. And then she's she realizes, oh, God, I'm 42. And this is 
this is what I have. <laughs> yeah, this is what I settled for. That's what I'm stuck with. It, yeah, it's different from when um, you're young and in college, your brain hasn't completely finished cooking. So you're, eight, you know, you're supposed to be changing right. and growing and whatever. But he kind of thought he had to stagnate, but they really didn't communicate very well, obviously. Yeah. That's right. When she saw him at college, he was, he was different and she liked that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And plus him being so silent and insular, even when he went on his trips, he had that book. Remember, he always had that book. Yes. Um, so, you know, people wouldn't talk to him. I forgot what the book was called. Miss something. Miss oh. Mac. Miss Mackey or something like that. Yeah, gosh darn it. I had it here. <laughs> but, yeah. but with Muriel, he gets a reset button. And it's hard for him. It's it's like he's been jarred. You yeah, know? he doesn't he have to cope. She doesn't know who he used to be, so he doesn't have to be the same old Macon all the time. That's right. He um She's not saying, Hey, I like I like you because you're different. I like this and that about you. It's just she's not saying like point blank the stuff she likes about him so he doesn't have to put on any sort of facade right you know she just lives her life and he has to follow along really he has to keep up with her you know like like when they're out shopping you know she goes in at all the shops she's looking around she's dealing with you know shop clerks and people or whatever and it's really he's sort of tagging along i mean no it's for edward they're training edward you know but that's just an excuse in a way you know and I think she sees in him kind of a project of sorts because um, she likes to be a fixer. And I think that's why she keeps, um, like page 193, sometimes making wondered if Alexandra's ailments were all in Muriel's head. It's like she needs to feel useful. Right. Like her, her family makes her feel useless. So she has her son. She has some sense of responsibility. She has her 10,000 jobs that she keeps and juggles in order to, you know, be there for Alexander. Right. It makes her feel useful. It does. But, you know, at the same time, she's not that worried. You know, here, um, Macon sees, this, he's a sickly boy, Alexander, mm-hmm. and Macon worries about him. And I'm saying she doesn't worry about him because she does. You know, parts of the book, she's up at night having to deal with him. And, you mm-hmm. know, she hovers over him when he eats because he has all these allergies. Yeah. But she goes away to Paris and she has all these different people looking after him. She has her village, as it were. Yeah, you know, and, and, and Megan finds that really hard. You know, how do you do that? How do you just leave him like that with all these different people? You know, is he going to be safe? He has these allergies, you know. Mm-hmm. He's so sickly. And um, I think she's forever astounding him, you know. Yeah. Shaking she's always a mystery. She is. Okay, so um, I was kind of looking, too, at like his traveling companions even in those incidental scenes on the airplane, the traveling companions are like some kind of foil for him. Like the first traveler when he goes to England, uh-huh. the fat guy in the gray business suit who reads all of his accidental tourist books. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. And Macon's at the point where he still doesn't want to change anything. And the traveler, he's someone who's like, hey, I'm a fan of your book. I don't have to change anything. But he's from <laughs> San Francisco and... He shows potential for change when he dreams of going to San Francisco. Mm. And then we have um, like the travel companion who's the older lady. Mm-hmm. Like she wants to live and she has very much a will to live. And so Macon's at that point where he wants to be inspired just to live and not merely cope. Mm-hmm. And I don't have the passage on me. But then Muriel is his final traveling companion. But she sneaks on. Yeah, she sneak she sneaks in, but mm-hmm. um, she's chaotic change, so he's got to learn to embrace change at this point. So she's not just dreaming it; she has made it happen. Mm-hmm. 
And even though he tells her, no, don't come with me, she buys his book and she says, I'm going to do it. And she doesn't let him stop her. Mm-hmm. So she, yeah, you're right. The, the, you know, as the last traveling companion, you know, at the end of the book or whatever, she she is the most determined of them all, not just dreaming about it, not just talking about it. She does it. Yeah. I mean, he has he has to be pushed. Right. Because at that, that last part in the end, he kind of feels like he can't change because he's been making for so long. Mm-hmm. And then he finally... You know, he finally is forced to change, like when he has the bad back. Um, the weekend right. novelist, they kind of point out that scene, too. Yes. Sarah swoops into Paris to get him taken care of, and he's doped up on all of these painkillers. Right. So he has all this comfort. He's in his comfort zone again, but he has no control. Right. And it's not even real comfort. It's like this film, like this Vaseline on the lens. <laughs> and and he's back in that Macon Leary body bag, but he's doped up, and it's too much like death. So he wants to live. So it's like the whole rejection of the pill, that last pain pill. He gets out of the literal stupor so that he can get out of his figure, figurative, figurative um, sleepwalking. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that, that was really good. It's a passive step because he doesn't say, no, don't give me the pill. He just passively drops the pill. Right. So it's a move that completely makes sense because he's still kind of a passive person, but he's taking active steps in his passive way. That's right. But the thing as you go through his thought processes, too, because he did start taking the pill. And then as he is reacting to Sarah, you know, in her conversation, and she is sort of, you know, she's insulting Muriel. She is, you know, like you said, she's swooping in. She's trying to take over. Mm-hmm. And he starts thinking, you know, is this what he wants? And, you know, like, you know, he's, he's thinking and he's seeing the pill in his hand. You can just see him like, no, this isn't what he wants. And he just drops the pill and decides, nope, this is like the first big step for him. And it's interesting how Muriel is described as being all sharp edges. Like Macon is someone who really wants to be in his comfort zone. So you have Muriel who's all sharp edges. Sharp elbows nudging him. That's right. Yeah. Body that, what was it? The collarbones that promised an unluxurious body. (laughs) There will be no comfort for Macon. (laughs) That's really good. Yeah. That's really good. It's funny because I have down here as the from from the other book, door number two, not swallowing the pill because that's that's like the the door of no return. Once he does that, you know, there's no going back, and he confronts Sarah, you know, which is which is an aggressive move for him too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was going to say also with this book, part of what I like this book is that I just kept feeling a lot of. I know it sounds weird, but this book gives you a lot of satisfaction, but you're forced to work for that satisfaction. Mm-hmm. So. You know, we, we see how Macon suffer, and I'm suffering with him, right? He loses his son, his wife leaves him. And when he finds comfort with his family, I find myself finding comfort in a way, because I've gone through what he's going through, right? He, you know, he breaks his leg, you know, and he just can't manage anymore. And I, I find myself, you know, sign relief. And then he, he has to do something about Edward. You know, he attacks Julian. He has to put him in the pantry. And this is where Muriel steps in. And I find myself really uncomfortable with her. And this yeah. is the author's writing, right? I mean, she's quirky. She's chatty. She's so direct, you know? And she steps right in immediately with Macon, like, call me to talk. Just call me, you know? And she snoops around his house, you know, even not knowing he left his house, you know? But she works with him. Mm-hmm. And after a while, you're, you're kind of on her side. You get to know her, you know? And you see where yeah. she lives. And you get to know her family. And then Macon, Macon, God, Jill. <laughs> 
<laughs> takes an interest in everything. And a lot of it because of Edward. And he takes an interest in Edward. And so you want Edward to, I want Edward, I should say, I shouldn't say you or we, but I want Edward to like Megan because he's taken an interest in him. And I know he, yeah. he's suffering deep down because of Ethan, you know? Yeah. Poor Edward. <laughs> poor Edward and poor Macon, really, you know? Yeah. And at the beginning, I want Macon and Sarah to reconcile. I think, God, doesn't she understand him? I mean, I, mm -hmm. I get that she's upset. Of course, I haven't been through what she's been through. But after a while, you know, I'm thinking, well, no, maybe not, you know? And she helps him. You know, the time when he's stuck up in the skyscraper. Yeah. And at the same time, back at the, his brother's house, they had to lock the dog and the, or no, the brother was locked in the pantry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Out of the pantry because the dog is attacking him mm -hmm. and so he has he ends up having to call muriel that's who he has to go to oh, and i yeah. think that's a huge scene where he calls her plus he's he can't breathe he's in the skyscraper and he's calling her but you know she interrupts like oh i saw the towering inferno and this and that and she goes but you know i'm sorry i've turned to the passage i think people who go up in that skyscraper are just plain brave I mean, if you think about it, Macon, you have to be brave to be standing where you are right now. Yeah. So, you know, and she's always just, as, as much in his, in his comfort zone as he thinks. He gets out of his comfort zone. Right. Yet she helps him, you know, and from afar, you know, she, she helps him from far, you know, just making him feel good about himself. Yeah. You know, and, and this is where she really comes in. So, um, and I think he starts, his, his attitude towards her really changes too. Yeah, definitely. And then, uh, and then my attitude changes to her as well. And I'm thinking, yes, you go, Muriel, right? <laughs> and then, and the, you know, towards the end where Sarah comes in to help him, right? He hurt his back. He's in Paris. She swoops in. You find out Rose is managing the office now and, and she's so brought Sarah perfect. in to help her. Excuse me? So perfect. Rose as an office manager, you know, she would low key run any business. Right. And actually, it's Macon who suggests it because Rose left Julie. You know, after they get married, she leaves him. They're married, but they live in separate quarters. Right. And, and Julian doesn't know how to keep her. And he's, you know, and, and give her a job. Know, yeah, give her a job. And she takes over that office and just whips it into shape. Yeah. <laughs> and then I, I have that mark, page 327, where, you know, Sarah comes in and I find myself, I've turned against her now. Mm -hmm. I'm like, no, you know? no, he needs to go. Right. She says, so I suppose you realize what your life is going to be like. You know, you'll be one of those mismatched couples. No one invites to parties. No one will know what to make of you. People will wonder mm -hmm. whenever they meet you. My God, what does he see in her? <laughs> you know, why choose yeah. someone so inappropriate? It's grotesque. How does he put up with her? And her, friend, yeah. her friends will no doubt be asking the same about you. So she actually. She kind of gets really catty. She gets awful there. She's just downright nasty there, you know, mm -hmm. and he sees that, you know, and what's his answer to her? That's oh, like, the one who left. Yeah, but I love his answer. Yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's when he realizes this is how couples evolve. Yeah. He becomes aware at this point. And I think it's pretty cool. <laughs> you know, it's like, and I'm rooting for him and saying, you go, Macon. You're doing it. Do it. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Drop the pill. Exactly. Actually, he had already done at this point, and he kind of shocks her when he tells Sarah, no, I, you know, she thinks it's the pill. Pill is making you like this, right? She's trying to find excuses for him. Mm -hmm. And he's like, uh, no, I didn't take the pill, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, it's, and I think she kind of realized. It's for real. It's for real. And then she gets really mean, you know? So it's like her last line of, you know, of attack. 
and it just doesn't work. It just dies away, you know, just with that one line. Yeah, you're probably right. Yeah. (laughs) So what, you know? I mean, she might come to her senses after the book is all over and everything. She's attractive and all that kind of thing. So she'll, she'll find someone new. Right. And it's also at this point where he has to make the choice. Yeah. And does he go back to his old life or does he start his new one? Yeah. And so, yeah, I really enjoyed that. I love that scene. I thought that was great. I've never seen the movie. Okay. I cannot find it. It's not streaming anywhere. I can't even get it. Um, I can't even order it through the Netflix. You had to actually just, I had to go out and actually purchase a whole ass DVD. Uh, well, are you part of a library? I mean, have you looked in the library system? Oh, I should do that. I've been doing that late, a lot lately. You know, um, things I can't find on TV, I, I found through the library. I'm just going to have to do that now. And I'm sure it's there because what, what's her name? Gina Davis plays Muriel. Yes. And I believe she won a Supporting Actress Award for that. I remember all the hype about the movie when I was a kid. I, I never showed any interest in it because it was one of those just serious grown-up movies. God, you youngster, you. I know. <laughs> And now that I'm old, I'm like, I should have seen that movie, man. That's okay. You're ready for it now. Yeah, I'm ready for it now. You, you wouldn't have appreciated it then and all the yeah, subtle like, nuances. Boring yeah. grown-ups. Ugh. I know. You know. So, um, yeah, so, yeah, no, it's a good movie. And I just wanted to say, and I, you know, we've talked about it in the, I know, with The Godfather, but mm-hmm. in this movie too, where it comes full circle, where, it, you know, in the beginning, he's in the car with Sarah. And that's where his life sort of falls apart, right? They're in the car. And it's raining. It's raining. And he insists on driving, even though it's raining. She doesn't want him to drive. She thinks it's dangerous. And not until she says, I want a divorce. And that's when he pulls over. He's just sort of, what? You know? Mm-hmm. And it's just so gloomy. But in the end, he's in Paris. And he wants a taxi. And this boy... Young boy is getting out of a taxi, keeps the taxi there. So Macon, who's having difficulty walking because of this back, you know, mm-hmm. can get in. And the boy's so polite. And Macon thinks of him as maybe it's Ethan. Or he could be like Ethan, this boy who seems so nice yeah. and polite. And he waves to him. And he thinks about Ethan. And he's coming to terms with Ethan. Like maybe, you know, I have here that Ethan, perhaps somewhere else, you know, he says maybe heaven or wherever. Maybe he's continuing with his life. You know, he's not just yeah. blotted out. And he, he comes to terms with it. And then at the very end, he sees Muriel. So in the beginning, he's with Sarah. At the end, he sees Muriel and the sun is shining. I mean, how symbolic yeah. is that, right? <laughs> exactly. And, and and you get the sense that he's ready to move on. Yeah. I've, I've noticed that rain is kind of um, symbolic of their relationship, Sarah and Macon, because mm-hmm. you have the rain in the car in the opening scene. And okay. then at the um, not quite midpoint, but like act three, when they reconcile, it's a rainy wedding day. The Rose's wedding? Yeah. Okay. It was raining when they reconcile. I remember that. I just had a couple of other observations about the characters. Okay. And some other randomness going on. Like with um, the Leary family, they're scared of change. Mm-hmm. They also have no sense of direction from a navigational sense. That's right. So I, I think those things are related because change equals getting lost. Because if they keep in their same rut, they won't lose their way. But if there's change, they might have to go off a different path. And that means they might get lost. That's so right. I think if they go shopping and then maybe they change the route or something. Yeah, they can get lost driving in a circle. That's right. That's right. So they're, 
They're helpless. Yeah, so the fact Outside they have their no, home, they're helpless. Yeah. Yeah. They have no sense of direction navigationally, and they have no sense of direction as far as their own personal agency goes. That's right. And, and they're so tuned in to each other, this, mm-hmm. the Larry family. And, and they're threatened when um, Julian comes and wants to be with Rose, and she makes this dinner. I don't know if you remember the turkey dinner. Mm-hmm. They're threatened, right? They don't want to lose Rose. They don't want to lose their way of life. And they actually insult her turkey. I they don't, don't think want it came Julian out. to steal her away. They want to... Right. It's like, oh, if he, if he thinks she's a bad cook, he's probably not going to come around anymore <laughs> and take her away. That's right. But Julian sticks up for her mm-hmm. because even though the turkey wasn't perfect, it was dried out or whatever, he says this looks wonderful and he eats it. <laughs> you know, in the end, he's just chewing away on it. And he's just a happy, you know, happy as can be, you know? Oh, yeah. He's um, like, he craves the stability of Rose, kind of the mm-hmm. same way um, Muriel craves the stability of Macon. Yes. But Rose realizes she wants to be with Julian. She's yeah. ready for this. Whereas Macon fights Muriel. Yeah, he has to be pushed. She, on the other hand, is ready. She's kind of um, kind of a foil for their relationship in a way. Kind of like in some, um, I'm not going to spoil any particular plots for stories we've been submitting to the group, but sometimes you have a character who is, you give up a character as a sacrifice to show the consequence <laughs> of your protagonist or antagonist not trying uh-huh. to make change. Right. Or you have, have a peripheral character show what can happen if you make the choice you're supposed to make. Okay. So Rose is kind of... Um, she's, ugh. I don't know, she's she sort of the... potential of getting out of the rut. Yes. But she doesn't yes. have a job to do, so she goes back to helping out the brothers because she doesn't know what to do. She doesn't know if Julian actually needs her. Well, Rose has always been, actually been the more, um, I don't what's the word I want, outgoing, although that might not be the right word, because she, she not only helps her brothers, she helps the neighbors. Mm-hmm. So, you know, she's constantly working around homes, helping people, helping the elderly, driving them places, fixing things for them, cooking for them. And, she, you know, she's like a, you know, the old cliche, the shark, right? Who has to keep moving. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and even though, you know, she's not moving far, you know, just around the neighborhood, but she has to do that. But when she is taken out of that and she can't move anywhere, she's just stuck in Julian's home. Mm-hmm. She dies. Or she would die. And Macon actually recognizes this, which is good. And actually, this says a lot for Macon wanting to help them. Because, you know, first the brothers are threatened, right? When they try to, you know, put down her dinner. But later on, Macon helps her, you know, or by, by telling Julian, we'll do this. Replace that secretary of yours. That's no good. Rose <laughs> can run this office. She can whip it into shape. There you go. And then um, I was looking at uh construction, you know, like of the book as well. Mm-hmm. Just a few things. Just her dialogue. I love the dialogue. Mm-hmm. In the book, she uses a lot of dialogue and the way she includes some of the background into the dialogue. Yeah, she does it without it being overly expository. Right. I think it helps that some of the characters are new recipients to some of that information. So um, you're not going, as you know, Bob. Exactly. You know, I have a, like a little sample here um, where Macon and Sarah are in the restaurant. Mm-hmm. So the, the waitress comes to the table and the waitress says, is everything all right? And Sarah sat up straighter and started rummaging through her purse. Yes, certainly, Macon says. So the waitress, she's carrying a tray with her main dishes and she she's looking at Sarah. So isn't she going to eat that? 
you know, Sarah's antipasta, mm-hmm. antipasto, whatever it is. You're going to eat that? You know, Megan's going, well, maybe not. Didn't she like it? She likes it. Take it away. So this whole time, you know, it's, you know, it's not like, well, you know, she doesn't say, well, Sarah isn't eating. Mm-hmm. You know, you get that through the dialogue. Sarah yeah. refuses to deal with it. She's rummaging in her purse so she doesn't have to deal with it, you know. <laughs> and also explains how Sarah's feeling about, you know, this conversation with Megan, right? It's upsetting her. She's she not going to break eat. bread with him. Yeah. Thought that was her idea to eat out, but yeah. Then maybe so, she realizes it was a mistake. Like, what have I done? <sighs> I know. But I, I love it. And um, if I can carry on here, um, towards the end, you know, so Megan has this, he has a sore back, right? Yeah. And the way Ann Tyler, the author, describes it when he's in the taxi, she doesn't mention his back. I love this paragraph. The taxi bounced over the cobblestones. So I'm, I'm bouncing, right? I love that. The driver whistled a tune between his teeth. So obviously, you know, he's not bothered by it. Macon found that bracing himself on one arm protected his back somewhat from the jolts. Every now and then, though, a pothole caught him off guard. Mm. And I'm just feeling my back because his back hurts, you know? I just thought that was really descriptive. You know? Oh, yeah. She does beautiful descriptions. She does. And then later on, you know, at, at the very end, he sees Muriel. It's like you start warming up when you read this. It's like sunshine comes out of you when you read this because it's just so, I just love it. It's like, and they're on the, this is from, you know, Macon Caesar, right? He's in the taxi. There on the curb stood Muriel, surrounded by suitcases and string-handled shopping bags and cardboard cartons overflowing with red velvet. She's frantically waving down taxis. And then Macon shouts, you know, stop, arrête, whatever in French, stop, stop, right? Macon cried to the driver. The taxi lurched to a halt. A sudden flash of sunlight hit the windshield and spangles flew across the glass. The spangles were old water spots or maybe the markings of leaves, but for a moment, Macon thought they were something else. They were so bright and festive. For a moment, he thought they were confetti. I mean, my gosh, oh, how much happier can you get? <laughs> yeah, and he wrote these travel books about how you pack the bare minimum so you don't have to check your baggage. <laughs> and then we end with a scene with Muriel and her 10,000 parcels that she's going to check. Right. <laughs> That's right. And side note, I want a time machine so I could go to a European flea market in the 80s and get a bargain. Because all that vintage stuff she bought is worth a fortune now. Oh, I bet. Pretty and sure. only that, in those days, you got away with, you know, having overpacked bags and stuff. Oh, no. <laughs> Not like now, you know, where you barely bring on a carry-on. <laughs> yeah. We're going to try to bring a carry-on, too. Sorry. <laughs> so, anyway, I just I just love the, you know, her sentences and the way, way she made me feel. I thought her writing was just spot yeah. on. And I like the book ending of the scenes. And, like, mm-hmm. all... All the symbolism that she puts in, like right. when um, Sarah calls from the hotel or it's um, he calls Sarah from the hotel. It's a long distance call. Mm-hmm. And and it's a fuzzy long distance call in the 80s. Right. So the reception is wonky. But of course, it kind of stands up for their um, their bad communication. Yeah. Yeah. They're not very well able to communicate literally or figuratively. Exactly. Their communication is off. You're good at that. <laughs> <laughs> I love picking apart stuff like that. It's so fun. It's really good. Well, I, I just look at the whole thing and think, oh, that makes me feel good. I don't know why, but it does. And here you are. This is why. <laughs> piece by piece. And, and I think one of those other things he sees, like with Muriel, he sees her spare existence. Like she barely has anything in her house. Mm-hmm. And so he, she has like physical material sparsity. She's thin. She's um, Her body is very bare minimum. 
-hmm. Her material possessions are very bare minimum and they're kind of like thrift store finds. And then he has like a spiritual, emotional sort of sparsity. Right. And then um, there's a point that they made in the book about how there's no her in the house because it's all other people's goods that she's bought. So she's not... um, She's not completely secure about who she is. I mean, she lives through, she lives her life, but there's like something about her. She's always in a costume. And she's always shopping. She loves shopping. Yeah. She's definitely trying to numb something. I think shopping is a sort of a thing people use to make themselves feel better, right? To keep buying little things. Yes. So she's not just this, um, she's almost a deconstruction of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. If the Manic Pixie Dream Girl were a trope back then. Because she doesn't just, you know, like I said before, she doesn't just show up, sprinkle fairy dust on everything and making is magically better. Like you see in some of these bad movies that use the trope terribly. But she has her own inner life. She has her own inner demons. She's someone who has to work on herself as well. And I think the fact she's dated a lot and has made a lot of bad choices with men. Mm -hmm. um, She's looking for stability. Right. And she sees that in Macon. Right. And she's been hurt a lot. But it's at the same time, I, I like that she, you know, there's a certain strength about her. Yeah. Sorry, I was just reading what else I had here on my notes. Um, yeah, I'm, I think I've burned through a lot of my notes. I found just a random quote here. Okay. Like the kind of movie hero that Macon wants to see. This is like at 311. This is like when he's stored, like working through like the last, I'm not sure the word I'm looking for, but he's kind of doing this last push to get out of his comfort zone. He wants mm-hmm. to stay, but then he realizes he, ha- he has to move. But then he's talking about the kind of movie hero that he wants to see. Not someone who can go through and get the job done and persevere. But he's looking for one, um, quote, who did face facts and give up gracefully when pushing onward was foolish, unquote. He wanted to see a hero that gave up. He was like looking for that validation at the last minute. I was going to say it's like going back to his old self, isn't it? Yeah. There's always that, um, like when you're putting together a story arc for your characters, there's um, almost always that last temptation, as it were, to go back to the comfort zone, but you're at that point of no return, so you can't. He's trying to find an excuse to go back. Yeah. But if he goes back, then he's not going to have any kind of control over his life. And he may hate himself. He doesn't realize it, but he would probably hate himself, right? Yeah. And he would resent Sarah. Exactly. I was just going back to the way she writes again mm-hmm. and how when Julian first comes into their life, you know, we're talking about, you know, not wanting change, but this was on page 117. Yeah. And it's just, do you remember when, um, I can't remember why, but the Leary brothers decide maybe they shouldn't answer the phone. Oh yeah. What was that for? I can't remember. Um, it, I forgot why they can't answer the phone, but they, they are terrified of answering the phone. Right. So they, so they figured the best way to deal with it is just not answer it. And of course, in those days, it's not like with our cell phones, we can hit the button to stop the ringing, you know, (laughs) the landlines just keep ringing and ringing and ringing. And you can't, and you don't have call waiting. Exactly. You know, you don't have all those features that came not that long after actually. (laughs) And, and so Julian is over and the phone is ringing and ringing and they're not answering it. And Chris Macon is really uncomfortable with Julian there. And the phone is ringing. And so it says here, it was Julian's face that decided him. Julian's pleased, perked expression. Megan reached over to the end of the table and picked up the receiver. And what I like about that is 
she doesn't tell us really what Macon thinks Julian is thinking. Mm -hmm. She doesn't tell us what Julian is thinking either. You know, it's just through Macon looking at Julian, we have to guess for ourselves what Julian is thinking or what Macon thinks Julian is thinking. And yeah. I just, I just make those, like that. I love that's that. So yeah. yeah. That's the problem I have when, um, when the point of view shifts too much, like some authors think that the reader needs to know what every single character is thinking all at the same time. And we right. don't, we don't, yeah. we're grownups. We can make inferences. We can fill in gaps. We don't need to know every single little detail. We need to know enough that it serves the story. Right. But we're allowed to guess and have our own interpretation. So I, yeah, I like that she doesn't just spell out what everyone is thinking. She hints at it and she does it with nuance. It makes it for more fun reading too. And I really think most readers enjoy it more because they have to use their own, you know, imagination. Yeah. And working out what they could be or maybe thinking. Yeah. Because if you're spelling out in so many words what every single character is thinking every single moment, you're micromanaging your reader. Yes, that's right. I mean, as an author, you need to know everyone's motivation, but you don't have to spell it out on the page. When yeah. you know everyone's motivation, you can um, drop in those hints. Mm-hmm. And then the actions are more believable. And the fact that your mind is working, I think it's more satisfying for the reader. Yeah. Like I said, I got a lot of satisfaction in that book, but I had to work for it. <laughs> but yeah, this has been fun. Thank you for dissecting the book with me. Well, and I'm glad you and I seem to have done it in different ways, which was fun too, you know, the way yeah. you know, the way we talked about it and picked it apart. Exactly. It was written in the eighties, so lots of spoilers galore. So, you know. Don't cry. Have we covered all the topics? I think we've covered all the topics. <laughs> we even digressed. <laughs> yeah, we had a couple digressions because that is that is on brand. That is. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for joining me, Jill. I had a great time. Thank you for asking me. Of course. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in. I'm Carly Knight. I'm Jill White. And this has been Procrastination Planet. Bye. Goodbye. Procrastination Planet has been written and produced by me, Carly Knight. Our logo is designed by C. Trojan of C. Trojan Art. Our theme music is Laser Unicorns by Christian Penn, courtesy of Jumendo Licensing. Check us out at procrastinationplanet.com. Over there, you can catch links to our bonus content for every episode, as well as links to our Patreon and our Teespring pages. All other sound at Procrastination Planet is courtesy of Charlie and Holly our official podcast puppies. Don't forget to drop us an email at procrastinationplanetpod at gmail.com. Let us know how we're doing. 